Welcome to the Millionaire Secrets Podcast, where the most successful people in the world share their secrets to help you create the awesome life you desire. Welcome back to another episode of Millionaire Secrets. Uh, we are here with Chris Doe, who's actually a, a new friend of mine, but someone who I really enjoyed getting to know when I appeared on his show, it was maybe a week or two ago. Mm -hmm. And uh, Chris, you know, he's pretty much a stud. I've, I've reviewed his stuff and looked over his bio. Um, he's an Emmy award-winning designer. He runs a creative agency called Blind. He has an awesome YouTube channel um, called The Future, F-U-T-U-R, where he does a lot of stuff that I'm aligned with about educating entrepreneurs and creatives and digital marketers. Um, and I'm just super excited to get into this amazing conversation. Welcome to Millionaire Secrets, Chris. Thank you, much. Thank you very much for having me, Jeff. I'm excited to return the favor and also give you an opportunity to grill me as I grilled you. <laughs> of course, of course. Um, yeah, so we had, a, we had a great conversation and frankly, I loved it. I mean, I, I, it, you know, I loved it because I could tell that right out of the gate, you're a very sort of ethical and socially conscious person, which frankly, in our industry, uh, at least the, the online ed uh, educator, educator portion, not maybe the creative agency for you, but on the online education side, like you're either part of the solution or you're part of the problem. Absolutely. <laughs> and there's sadly probably a lot more people that are part of the problem, <laughs> which is just over promising hype based, you know, marginally ethical marketing around what's, what's a very real potential, which is the internet can transform people's lives in terms of figuring out how to utilize it for business. But uh, I think because there's maybe a low, low barrier to entry or, or, or and, and a sort of a diffusion of accountability because it's not like you can, you can call your neighbor and say, hey, have you eaten at that restaurant? And they're like, yeah, I did. And the food was cold. And you're like, okay, well, I'm not going to go there. Like, we don't have that online, right? Um, so, yeah. Anyway, I could tell right out of the gate that, that you, like me, are really uh, prior put a priority on ethical and I don't know what the word would be um, just not bullshit mm -hmm. <laughs> for, for, for presenting the online opportunity. So talk more about that. How did you, which came first? Were you, uh, did you have the creative agency or did you start educating people about online business? Yeah, I started the creative agency blind in 1995 when I got a school. So that's been 20 years running. The educational knowledge product industry thing has been relatively new to me. The future started in 2016, I believe. But prior to that, or in between these things, I, I also taught a, at a private art school, art center, for 15 years. So I've been a teacher for quite some time, longer than I've been an influencer or podcast right. or content creator. So, yeah, I, I hope people hear that and go, wow, you know, you, you taught, what did you actually teach? Yeah, I taught at Art Center and I taught in the graphic design program and I, the concentration was motion graphics. So I taught main title design, sequential design, and uh, like visual communication at another school. Okay. So yeah. like, I hope people hear that and go, oh, this guy's legit. This guy's really smart. This guy, like he run, you run a really successful creative agency. You taught visual design at a, what's well, essentially a college level. Um, cool. He's not a fake guru. <laughs> <laughs> uh, which is what we both seem to be sort of on guard slash uh, fighting against. Um, yeah, 
It's because there's a lot of people out there, Jeff, as you know, who basically, I think the, the model is you buy somebody's course, you change a few of the words or you buy into their whole funnels and you just repackage it. And I think that's what's happened. And unfortunately, there are a lot of people who are desperate for some help and they have a little disposable income and they, they I don't want to say victim because I don't like the word victim, but they, they succumb to the trappings of all the things that are triggers, emotional triggers for people and they can't seem to help themselves. And we all get lumped into this. Basically, if you sell anything online as an educational tool or product, you, you, the, the guard is up and, and people's radars are looking out for all these scammers and there's lots of them out there. So, yeah, it's, it's interesting, I, you know, Russell Brunson and others have really popularized this idea of funnel hacking, mm -hmm. which I actually think is great. I mean, don't reinvent things that don't need to be reinvented, right? Capture pages that convert, sales letter structures that convert. I had John Benson on the show last week, who's the inventor of the slideshow VSL. And I'm like, why would anybody try to improve on what he's got? Unless your mm -hmm. funnel's not converting, don't, we don't need to innovate. But I think that funnel hacking has kind of morphed into business model hacking, USP hacking, brand hacking, uh, promise hacking. You know, you got to be careful when you're, when you're duplicating somebody else's promise, but you don't have somebody else's credentials, you're probably riding a pretty ethical, a, a pretty fine line ethically, right? Um, I think so. Yeah, and it, you're right. It's gotten to the point where people are like, hey, I don't actually need to really know very much. I'll literally just copy that guy. Um, so, so how did you get into this? Uh, almost by accident, uh, because a friend of mine who I went to school with, he was already creating content for YouTube. His name is Jose Caballero, and he's another graphic designer, but he's been working a long time in user experience design, whereas my expertise was in motion design, making commercials and music videos. We teamed up in 2014. He knew I wanted to start an education company. I wanted to teach people about design, about topography, things that I was already doing with my freelance and my, in, my, my freelance team and my, my interns. I was like, I, I'm tired of teaching the same thing over and over, but I, I didn't have any experience in that space. So we got together, we started a YouTube channel. It's called The School. Back then it was a company we created. And uh, kind of a, a year and a half, two years into, we realized we have very different mission, vision, and values and work ethic that it made sense for us to preserve our friendship because we were fighting about stupid stuff all the time that we should split this off. And uh, that's when we, we decided to go our own way. And I started the future. And the first product the future had was something that my former business partner created and I co-created with them. And so we were just selling that. And it's a fantastic framework and it's, it's really great because there's not a lot of competition for it and it actually really does transform lives. It transformed my life, so I'm the biggest spokesperson for it. That's, that's man, I love that and I wanna talk more about it, but I'll just okay. share. So my, my primer course that leads into everything I do is called the Entre Blueprint and it's exactly what you just said. It's literally just, this is what worked for me. Not just worked, but like completely overhauled my whole life. Therefore, maybe it'll work for you. That's like my whole USP. So is, for you, is this that, uh, I, I don't, I don't want to butcher it, but is it the Ikigai thing that I hear you talk about? No, so what mm -hmm. is it? What's your kind yeah. of? Yeah, so the, the thing that he taught me, okay, so uh, just to kind of rewind the tape into history here, I studied traditional graphic design. My intent was to go and design magazine editorial spreads to do entertainment packaging and marketing, CDs, uh, music CDs, which people no longer buy and young right. people don't even know what that is anymore. And that was my intent. But getting out of school, 
I got into this new field. It wasn't even called this yet, but it's called motion design where you're moving type graphics, images, and live action, and you're mixing them all together. And it's really mixed media format and you're making commercials. But my friend Jose had been spending as much time as I was in motion design in web design. He was there like with web 1.0, 1.1 or whatever it was. And, and had this very different level of expertise working with really large companies at the ground level, uh, having a seat at the C-suite uh, executive or C-suite executives and advising and, and managing uh, very large complicated projects for airlines and for large music companies. In the meanwhile, I was working for advertising agencies, the biggest ones in the world, and they were doing the strategic part. What he did was he showed me what that world was like, how you play in that world, and my head exploded. And so it's a product called Core, and we're at version 2.0 right now with a few iterations in between. And it really teaches designers how to think like design thinking and solve business, communication problems, culture problems, not just design and visual problems. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. So everything I see from you really seems tailored around taking true, like creative, you know, really committed creatives, not, not dilettantes, but like people that are deep in their craft and almost like pulling them back a little. And I see the same thing with coders a lot, programmers, like you got to pull them back a little bit to almost back off their intensity to be able to have business conversation. And, and there's a whole other, you know, thought per, way of thinking too. But it's like you walk into a C, you know, a C-suite meeting and start talking your, your designer talk. Everybody just glazes over and they're like, yeah, next, you know, bring in the next guy who speaks our language, even though you might be the best designer. Right? So is that part of what you're doing is sort of helping designers get out of their own way? in terms of actually getting paid? A little bit. I, I think one of the myths that designers have is that the better I'm at my craft, the more people will respect me, the more I'll get paid, the more I'll move up in the decision-making tree. And to a degree, the design skills get you to a certain point, but then you have the, the, the law of diminishing returns that you can, you can spend four times as much energy becoming a better craftsperson, but it, it gets you incremental improvements in your life and your career. What you have to do is you have to learn to speak the language of business. And I often refer to Todd McFarlane, one of the most, uh, probably the most successful, commercially successful comic book artists of all time. In that he's like, you know, artists, we speak the language of art, but me, I'm successful only because I was able to speak the, the language of business. So I became bilingual. I spoke the language of the two and I could communicate mm -hmm. back and forth. And he grew an empire making toys and licensing his, his IP to, to different uh, platforms like video games and other things. And so we need to teach creative people if they want to have a business conversation, which you want to have, and you want to have a seat at the table, you have to learn to speak their language. You have to look at the problems they're trying to solve and get out of your own way in that all you care about is this really beautiful thing that you're going to polish. Now, granted, you need to be able to do that. So the, the journeyman uh, designers who are just kind of figuring things out still, you're still working on a craft and that's good and that's totally fine. But for the people who have arrived at that place, the only way you get to the next level, in my opinion, is to learn to speak the language of business. You have to, uh, that's the expression, like the mountain could go to Moses, but it's a lot easier for Moses to go to the mountain. Oh, that's a, I've never heard that expression before. That's solid. I want, I want to like steep in that for a minute. Mm -hmm. The mountain could go to Moses, but it's a lot easier for Moses to go to the mountain. That's, that's good stuff right there. Um, 
So do you, do you get a lot of pushback on, and I come from the, the music world. I was a, a jazz pianist all through my twenties. And I mean, musicians are like, there's a strong, you know, anti-establishment vein and language around selling out. Right. Do you get that with, with designers? You do. And you, you get, um, so what I'm talking about is often counter to the things that people want to believe, the things that have been taught or just through the old grapevine rumor mill that it's all about the pixels. It's about whether you care more than somebody else about the way something looks like not that shade of purple. It's this shade of purple and people get into design beef on Twitter over these kinds of things. And how can you tell is if you look at whenever they do a brand refresh, people lose their lid and it's like, it's a mark. Companies evolve your attachment to the old mark probably is rooted in some kind of deep emotional thing and you got to get over that. So they get, they get all bent out of shape over things like that, but they, they also feel very uncomfortable to talk about money, to, to put a value on the things that they do. So when I talk about money, it's like, Ooh, blasphemer, uh, thou shalt not mix money and art together. Commerce and art should not right. uh, intertwine and, and commingle. And they feel like uh, you become some kind of art prostitute, pardon the expression, but that's what they, they say. And they think by being commercially successful, then you have no more skill. So it's like you have to be poor to be good, or you could be wealthy and just be bad. And it's like these binary ways of describing things. I don't think that's the case. To me, Johnny Ivey, uh, from Apple's uh, former chief designer, uh, Steve Jobs' right-hand man for design, became probably the most well-known designer and probably the richest designer that I've ever known because of what he was able to do at that company. Yeah, and, and it's interesting. I mean, Apple's a great example of the melding of design with commercial intent. Like, I mean, do designers, I actually happen to have a, just because I just got a new old, a new old iPhone that mm -hmm. I'm just using for Instagram Lives uh, so that I don't have to tie up my new, new iPhone to do that. And it came with, you know, headphones, right? Mm -hmm. And I haven't even opened them, but like, I mean, these are, these are wired headphones. They're not AirPods, but like, I just, that's just amazing. Do designers poo poo this because it sold millions of units and made a ton of money? No, I don't think so. Uh, it's hard to critique Apple because designers like myself love Apple. I, I myself described Apple fanboy and it's when you look at Apple, they're usually put on the upper echelon of what design is supposed to be. It's refined, it's reductive, it's minimal, it's thoughtful, it's intentional. Uh, and in these days, more so than before, it's eco-friendly. If you look at the packaging that comes from Apple these days, they consider every interaction between the time in which you get that box in your hand and the, the time in which you pop that out. It's like miniature origami boxes yeah organized like a bento box, right? And it's a little treat and delight. You notice too, they've reduced plastic and tape inside their boxes, that's all paper. And so paper folding, and they probably had to con uh, consult lots of people to like figure out how to do this so that it doesn't fall apart right when you open it. Mm -hmm. and, and these are very critical things. And so each one of those tiny little interactions really inform your experience as a user. And what we're talking about now is that uh, in, in a world where uh, it's becoming increasingly dematerialized, like we spend more money for less physical things, we're looking for transcendent experiences and we're willing to pay more for it. So Apple commands a premium uh, because of its ethos, because of however we're aligned with the culture and tribe. Uh, 
and that if they consistently deliver that to us, that experience, we're going to consistently give them 20, 30% of a price premium over their nearest competitor. I'm sure you've seen uh, Simon Sinek's Start With Why Mm -hmm. TED Talk and maybe read his book. But I mean, that's exactly what he's talking about with Apple. I, uh, yeah, I mean, it's interesting now that you're describing it. And I, I love hearing people that know more than me talk about the things they know more than me about. <laughs> and the way you're <laughs> describing this, I mean, it is. You think about the volume of product that Apple ships. And yet at no point in the experience do I have to go, hold on, let me go get a knife. Because the paper is tabbed with the paper. And I just go, boop, and it, I mean, it's, I don't know, it's just amazing. Um, and I'm glad you mentioned that. So, and again, this, this harkens to my experience as a musician. And frankly, but actually it goes deeper than that. I think, you know, I, as an entrepreneurial educator, and maybe you, you obviously you share this experience because you're, you're dealing with designers who it sounds like embody this, this, um, this aspect a lot of people have a really hard time pivoting into like pure business conversations where business is profit driven. And that's at a macro level, that's actually the, the primary influence on every aspect of the conversation. People say, Oh, I want to, I want to create quality. I want to create service. Yeah. But at a real business level, the reason you want to create quality and service is because you want to create value. And the reason you want to create value is because you want to create profits right? And so I find that it's not just creatives. It's like a huge percentage of people that this is one of the hardest parts about their shift to entrepreneurship is that they're uncomfortable talking about money, what things should cost, the reality that in order for them to have a real business, a viable business, things may need to cost more, right? I mean, yes. (laughs) So, so how do you, I noticed in a number of your, your um, content, a, a, a good amount of your content out there, you're tackling this head on. You're talking to people about what they should charge for things and how they yep. can develop a stronger mindset around their own value and taking that value to market and commanding an appropriate compensation for that value. Can you kind of riff on that for me? Yeah, I, I think if we look at historically like how people look at value and price uh, we don't we use those two terms interchangeably or and we don't understand the difference between the two if i asked you what it costs to make something well the cost is really a, a combination of time and materials right so what did the raw materials cost how much labor was applied and at what rate was the the labor charged at so then we come up with a cost so when people ask you for a price you talk about that we're removing something that's very critical is value to the customer and, and mm-hmm. there's, a, there's a simple test here. So if you and I were to walk into an art gallery and we look at a painting and, and realistically, somebody had asked us, would you like to buy that painting? And we both think it's good. The colors and the size feel like we both could use it. And, and they're like, well, write down the price and, 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 and the highest price or, or the price we feel is most appropriate, we'll, we'll, we'll sell you the painting. There's a very small chance that you and I would write down the same number. For you, you're like, you know what? I'm not a big uh, aficionado of this kind of, uh, or, or I don't love this style of art. I'm not really feeling it, but I'd like it to hang up above my, my coffee table. That would be a nice place. Okay, cool. I get that. And then I'm like, oh my God, 
this art really moves me and and I think this artist is on the on the rise and 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 the last show I did X so my information my knowledge my passion tells me this is worth a lot more and mm-hmm. and, and so I'm going to write a different price tag so what what some people don't account for is the fact that you and I could look at the exact same thing literally and come away with a totally different price because it, it, there's a different value to us. And so here's the weird thing. And designers think this is unethical to charge different clients a different amount of money for the same mm-hmm. amount of work because they're still stuck in this industrial revolution model where we're factory workers and you clock in and your value is measured in your output. Like how many widgets did you crank out today and if you cranked out a lot you're productive and you might get a promotion or a raise and we're still stuck in that way of looking at work so the real way to talk about money and value is to ask you what problem are you trying to solve we know in sales that a client comes to you with a problem in mind and they already know they have to spend money to solve this problem either by hiring you for a service that you do or buying a product that you make they have a problem so my thing is i'm in the search for a person who's got a meaningful problem that I have a shot at solving. And that's critical for me. See, the designer, uh, uh, the typical, stereotypical designer is looking inward and saying, what is it going to take me? What is it worth to me? Uh, Instead of going to play with my kids and going out with my family or working on this other uh, passion project of mine, I'm going to take away time from that. So there's a cost to me. They don't really, really look at the other person. So absent value, you can only talk about price. So if you don't have the value conversation, then you're going to focus on what it costs. I mean, such power in what you're saying. And I I assume and definitely hope that everybody listening to this realizes we're not just having a conversation for designers. This is everyone in business. And I think one of the the reasons people resist this conversation is because there's sort of an implied inequity because the reality is things are problem solutions are worth more to people who have more money. Generally speaking, right? If somebody I was actually, I mean, and literally it's, it's awesome and ironic that we're talking about this because I was, strangely thinking about this a few hours ago at the gas station don't ask me why i was thinking like coaching and consulting is probably the extreme or or an an extreme example of something that is drastically different in value depending on who you're providing it to right right and so if i go into a company that's doing a hundred million dollars in revenue and i say hey i you know let me go let me go spend a day on your sales floor because I think, you know, if I can optimize a few processes, I think I can, you know, increase your margin by 2%. Uh, you know, that, what's that? It's a, you know, net, uh, who knows? It could be a two, ten, long term, it could be a $20 million conversation. Therefore, my, my fee to go sit in your office for a day is 100 grand. Yep. And they should be happy to pay that if I'm credible. But like, at the same time, somebody's like, where do you get off thinking your time is worth $100,000 in a day? Well, my client's dealing with a lot bigger pendulum, so it's worth a lot more if I can help them swing it. And that, yeah. that, that like, people think that's not fair. I mean, do, do, you, do you agree? I mean, that that's, people don't like the idea that 
people that you should charge. I mean, on the provider side, the idea that you should charge more because somebody can afford to pay it seems unethical. That does seem to be an idea that people are fighting and, and that's okay. And whatever you and I are talking about, you and I may have the same opinion. We may have different opinions. And here's the cool part about opinions. You're allowed to listen to any, none, or combine it and do whatever you want. If you're happy, so here's the formula I have is, or the, the response I have to this is, if you're happy with the money that you're getting, with the work that you're doing and the clients that, uh, that are hiring you, by all means, just keep doing that. That's totally fine. You don't have to do anything that we're talking about. You don't have to look at anything differently. You can stay in that place and, and be happy forever until the day you're underground. Totally fine. But let's look at this. The, like, let me try to boil this down so that it's really easy to understand. If you want to make more money, don't price the job, price the client. The client arrives with a very specific problem in mind. I'm going to give you a couple of examples. And then you solve that problem. And then you, through a series of conversations with them and through diagnosing and research, you figure out, okay, the problem is a $10 million problem or it's a $10 problem. And then you cannot charge one uh, the price for the other. It just doesn't make sense, okay? Even though you're doing the same work. So here's the thing. I saw somebody comment on, I think on Twitter or on YouTube on one of the videos and it said, there is a ceiling to how much you can charge. Like you can't charge $2 billion. That's ridiculous. That's what they're saying. Now, I'm probably adding a lot more spice and heat into my reading of this message, but that's a sentiment. I said, well, well, it depends. If you could solve a $1 trillion problem, like for example, if you can go into a government that's, that's upside down, the, the GDP is really low, they need help in modernizing their country and you have the ability to solve these problems, well, $2 billion to spend to solve a trillion dollar problem ain't nothing. So mm -hmm. they don't understand that. But if you scale it down to numbers they do understand, then all of a sudden, and, and this is just math, right? So if you solve a $1,000 problem and you charge $2 or $20 or $200, it relatively speaking, they can afford this and they're going to pay you for this. Let's look at a couple other examples. One, uh, if there's a car wash and there's a long queue, and you are in a rush, they may have an express price that you can pay. And if you come up to the counter and like they do have an express program, you're like, I need to get out of here. I have to go pick up my, my wife at the airport and uh, I, I need to pay more to get this thing done. Same car wash, but you're willing to pay more. Now, good customer service would say, take the person's money, move them up the queue and apologize to everybody else or buy them a soda or, do, or throw in a car wax or something, undercarriage wash, whatever, and get this person out. That's what you're supposed to do. You make accommodations. So you would say then if you deny this person, what kind of customer service is that? Now, here's another example that everybody can understand. And I did set this up on purpose. Let's talk about airfare. If you go on any one of these sites that bids airfare, like uh, whatever ones, there's a gazillion of them out there, and you're flying from LA to, to Utah, right? And you, you can find it seemingly like a hundred different prices, depending on whether or not you have one stop, two stops, no stop. If you want to go in business class, economy, first class, economy express, economy premium, it's the same flight. It's getting you from LA to Utah in different amounts of time and, and different amount of creature comforts. So some people will say, I'm worth it. I feel like I'm important or I need to stretch my legs, or I need to grab a power nap before we get there. It's important to me. I'm willing to pay more. So we happily do that all day long. We're happy to pay more for a room, a hotel room with a view, or on the top floor, or closer to X, Y, or Z. So see, if you look into the real world and you just check your own logic, it doesn't really quite hold up. 
Well, so it seems to me there's a, a nuance to what you're describing. And, and by the way, I very strongly agree with your sentiment. Like we're, we're, we're entrepreneurial and aligned in that sense. Um, but the nuance to me is using the car wash example, other people are watching. Like nobody knows what the guy next to him paid for their flight and their experience wasn't impacted by what the other guy paid for their flight. I buy an economy ticket. My economy ticket is what it is, even if another guy pays $200 more to fly first class, right? Yep. But at the car wash, like you said, there's a, there's a trade-off. Well, they bumped the guy up, so I'm delayed by 79 seconds. And so I expect a soda for the inconvenience or whatever. But Perhaps. that's where we get into like, feelings and people are like well it's not fair it's not fair that that guy uh was able to buy a little bit of accelerated experience and and frankly buy pay for a little bit of delay in my experience at least that's how they'll perceive it and on top of it it's not fair that he has a maserati and i have a celica and on top of it it's not fair that he's wearing you know maui gym sunglasses and i'm wearing the gas station sunglasses and on top of it, you know while we're on it it's not fair that you know my landlord has left me a note this morning saying I'm about to be evicted. And on top of it, it's not fair. And it's, it like careens into this whole, you know what I mean? Like people are linking things that don't actually link. And so on the service provider side, we don't want to bear the brunt of that. So we just tell the guy, no, I'm sorry, sir. We don't offer express service. But that doesn't happen. That doesn't happen in the real world. There are rush fees for this very reason. You know, my normal turnaround is one week. I need it in two days. Can you do that? Yes, I have to charge you double. Glad to do. Fine. I have to work overtime. I got to charge you quadruple. No problem. I got to charge you. This happens all the time. Look, look at just in real life. Maybe my example wasn't the best because I changed the rules on the game. But let's look at other examples and we'll get back to the car wash. Uh, at least here in LA, you can buy a fast pass, which means you're allowed to drive in certain lanes that are not even like even right. if you're carpooling, you can't get into and you pay for that privilege and that's fine. And the way we look at it, it's like, those idiots are in a rush, they're paying for the rest of us to, to have better roads and freeways or better cops or whatever it is, they're paying for that. And then we say in Disneyland or Universal Studios, they also have a different level of pass, which allows you to get in a totally different line. Mm -hmm. Now here's the thing, the, the buying psychology of both people are very different. Like my cousin took my kids out to Universal Studios, He's not in LA very often, so he buys that little Premier Pass, allows them to go on as many rides as possible. We're locals, I'm like, that's crazy. I don't wanna pay three times. We can go here three times if you want, right? right? So we have a different mentality. I don't begrudge him, and I'm sure as heck, I'm sure he's not begrudging me. This happens all the time. There are VIP lounges, there are VIP clubs. For example, even for airfare, if you join the Admiralty Club or you, you pay for certain privileges, you can sit in the lounge while everybody else is sitting in the general terminal. That's totally okay. Now, let's address uh, the car wash thing. Uh, it, it is only funky if there wasn't a pre-established express lane. Right. So let's just reinvent that scenario. I, I, I didn't set that up properly. If there's an express lane, you could choose. But you know what? A lot of people are like, yeah, I want to read the newspaper. Or it's a nice day for me to go do some grocery shopping while they're washing my car. They have a different timetable, different set of values than you. And one day they're going to want to use that. Now, let's address the last part, which is people who say it's not fair. Well, here's what I love about people who say, I don't think it's fair. 
they only say it in one direction. They never say it in two directions. And, and I talk a lot about symmetrical logic, okay? So the symmetry of logic says, well, it's not fair relative to your position looking forward. Do you ever take a moment to sit there and are grateful and appreciative for, for what you have? For example, if you're born in America, you're already born in a great zip code and you're not at war with, and nobody's trying to kill you right now. The government's not out to steal your land and there's a lot of things that are going on in the world that you're a much better advantageous position, but you're not turning around looking back and saying, well, that's not fair to them. Well, let's just admit it. Life isn't fair. Some of us were born in poverty, in broken homes and have to endure abuse and are trying to overcome mental, like literally like medical uh, disorders and things like that. Yeah, we're tr that's not fair either. Or is it fair that you have all operating limbs and you can see clearly and speak clearly, but somebody is a paraplegic? Mm -hmm. How is that fair? So sitting around complaining about things that aren't fair might make you angry, might make you feel better in the short term, but it actually doesn't, in my opinion, move you towards a solution. And I'm a solutions-oriented person. Like if it doesn't help me, I don't want to do it. If it helps me, I'll do more of it. And that's why you're successful, among other reasons I would assume, but and that I've observed. But and the reason I'm saying this, it's not because I want to like split hairs over the examples you gave or, you know, reduce it down to one example of human behavior. It's because I think there's a larger, uh, a larger truth that we can, we can draw from this conversation, which is, I mean, the way I always term it is just about how feelings are a really, really bad basis for decision-making. And they're a really, really bad basis for behavior. And to the extent that at least my audience is largely made up of people that are trying to have more success in life, um, in, in terms of the, the be, do, have model, which I'm, I have no doubt you're familiar with, what, one of the things that you can start doing now, regardless of what you have, is you can start dissociating your feelings from your choices. That's all, to me, that's always going to be a step towards success. If you, to, to discipline yourself to not use feelings as a basis for decisions. And... And like you said, to start scrutinizing your decisions or your feelings, well, scrutinizing your decisions uh, through a logical framework. And, you know, the reason I say this is because I, I have groups. I try to talk about things that matter on my show. I try not to just go down these, you know, rhetorical rabbit holes. Um, I, I have groups in my world of aspiring business people and aspiring entrepreneurs and people that are in the weeds of building things and trying to get a result. And so much of the language that I see uh, is, is laden with feelings. And it's, it's rarely constructive. It's almost like an inverse relationship. The more emotional it is, the less constructive it is. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I'm saying this hopefully as an insight for people to go, you know, maybe if somebody is, has not achieved a result that they've been after, maybe, and, and I'm saying this to myself too, look at the circumstance and assess, was there any emotional, lack of emotional regulation inherent in the way you approach the situation? Mm. Um, and, and you often, I will find that it's a yes. And often if I screen my own life through that same lens, I will find that it's a yes. Yeah. 
So I have a slightly different take on that. And okay. I, I think it's impossible to separate yourself from feelings. And if you believe some of the research, all our decisions are based on emotions. And then we use logic to justify it afterwards. So it's not that we can suppress or deny them. I think we just need to be better interpreters of what we're feeling. For example, hmm. uh, Jeff, I believe you're, you're married and you have a couple of kids, right? Now, mm -hmm. if somebody were to threaten one of your children, the emotion, the feeling that you're going to have is one of protection and love, and you're going to be compelled to take action. It's not like you're going to sit there and, and calculate it very coldly. Like, I, I think little Bobby or Mary or Susie can handle themselves, and this is a life lesson, and everybody needs to defend for themselves. You as a father are going to spring into action. Uh, also, if you're having a meal in an open-air restaurant and somebody falls down, splits their head open on the sidewalk, you can say, well, is that my responsibility? Who's, or you can just spring into action. So sometimes those feelings are very good and we just need to interpret them. Uh, Simon Sinek, since you brought him up before, he talks about this in one of his talks and it's like the feeling of nervousness is like your, your heart, gets, heart beats faster, your palms get sweaty and you have visions of the future. And when you're excited, your heart beats faster, your palms get sweaty and you have visions of the future. Exact same feeling, different interpretation. So if we want to get a little bit more control over our lives and the outcomes and, and have the kinds of things that we want to achieve in our lives, we just need to be better interpreters of recoding and understanding through an objective lens and making a decision. So I like to understand what my feelings are, but then I'm going to sit, sit outside and it's like, what are you feeling? Is that helping you right now? Yes, then feel it and go all the way. Let's rock and roll. And, and we feel all the time because almost every buying decision you make, actually every decision you make, is based on a feeling. Like you didn't buy that expensive car because it actually performs better. You, you bought it because it makes you feel like you've accomplished something. It gives you social status. It's, it's evidence for the work. Or it might be some comeuppance because some, some, some internet troll told you you couldn't make it. Mm. And you did it. So that's all feeling based. And there's nothing wrong with that. The thing is you have to use the feeling to compel you to take action. So here's the deal. If you're angry, be angry that you're not where you want to be. Not angry at other people for achieving what they want. Yeah right? That's where you want to reinterpret the energy. So as you're saying this, I'm thinking feelings are fuel. They're not steering. Use like an automotive yeah. metaphor, like yes. harness the feeling, pull the energy from it, but don't allow it necessarily to direct where you go and how you apply it. Unless you want to. Because you're going to want to fall in love interpreting too, right? it first and trying yes. to get to the deeper meaning. Yeah. Yes. Insert one step in between feeling and action. Just one step. Observation, interpretation, then make a decision. Yeah. So, I, and, and if I didn't articulate something that was in total alignment with what you just said, then that was my bad because I totally agree with what you're saying. Um, I think you did. So I just wanted to make sure. Yeah, I know. But I yeah. love your emphasis on the decoding and the, uh, the deciphering the meaning. There's a, in psychology, there's a concept that I refer to a lot because it was really impactful for me because it was very practically useful in becoming a less impulsive person mm -hmm. that was called the Ellis paradigm, which is by a, a psychologist named Albert Ellis, um, who essentially has a framework to say you know, it's ABCD. There's an activating event. There's your beliefs about the events. And then there's the C is the consequence of the event, which is going to be actions and feelings. And then there's D, which is disputation, which is your 
cognitive ability to go dispute the beliefs that connected A and C. So something happens, therefore you do something, and most people mentally think that they're leaping from A to C. And what you're saying is figure out the B, the belief, the meaning that you ascribed between them. And that there's, and, and you're, you know, Albert Ellis is agreeing with what you're saying, that there's always a belief. You can't respond to something without first deciding what it means. Even in a split second at a subconscious level, right? And to just recognize it as human beings, we, we have the ability and we can cultivate the discipline of disputing that belief. It's not always, my therapist always says, it's not, you know, nobody's truth has a capital T, right? It's not a proper noun. Um, so anyway, yes, I, I love what you're saying. So to bring this back to a business outcome or, or a business objective, what is the belief that stops people? Because, because what we're saying has like a very practical real world implication, which is like, if you don't have the right beliefs, the activating event is prospect has problem. And the consequence is service provider, i.e. me, or product provider quotes price. The belief that links those two things has a lot to do with whether or not you have a viable business or not. Right? Yeah. So... It, through your, and, and I haven't watched all the videos, but I know you deal with this a lot. Have you been able to pinpoint what is the belief? We talk about limiting beliefs all the time. Mm -hmm. What is the belief that stops people from ultimately being able to build a viable business based on having the value versus price conversation that you talked about? I, I, yeah, that's a good question, Jeff. I don't know if there's one universal belief because when I coach people, it's all different things. Some people need a little love. Some people need a plan that they literally just need a plan. So they, they're getting in, into the strategy, the tactical parts like here, do this. And a, a lot of times, so let's just be honest here. We live in a wonderful age of information where there's an abundance, a plethora of information and tools and resources available for a fraction of what they used to cost, relatively speaking. And so if people are sitting around and saying like, why can't I have the life that I want? Why can't I get out of debt? Why can't I pay off my college loan or, or have a, a rainy day fund? It's not because of lack of information. So let's take that off the table. It's not that you're waiting for the right piece of information because if you want it, it's out there. Most of it's free. Some of it's for a little bit of money and, and very few of it is for a lot of money. When I say a lot of money, I'm talking about now a $250,000 tuition from one of these private, uh, private universities, okay? Mm -hmm. So if you get the information, what are you gonna do with that information? So we get into this super analytical state of mind, I think now. So now we get into belief systems and something is preventing you from taking action. I think Tony Robbins said something like this, where it's like complexity is the enemy of action. Like we need to make things simple so we can move forward. But in our minds, we create a much more complicated process. Like what proof do I have that this works? What guarantee do you have that this will work for me specifically? And when this happens and if I fail, how will you support me there? So what they're doing is they're creating a ton of reasons why they don't want to do this thing. You know, Nike has a great, great slogan, just do it. Right. And, and it, the world would be a better place if everybody just did do it, but they don't. So I have some suspicions as to why they don't. One is unfortunately, 
they grew up in an environment, uh, whether it's influenced by parents or, or coaches or friends or whoever it is, that told them these things are not possible. And so if you, if you grow up, say, like as an adult, so you have 18 years of programming. And it's very hard for most people to undo this programming. They always say that they're the rich people, they're the poor people, they're the, the people who have had things handed to them and the things that people have to work for and this is not real and that's fake. They, they, they have this programming. It's very difficult to overcome without help. And then you have to be willing to do this one thing that I think holds a lot of people back, which is you have to be willing to fail. You have to be willing to fall, to say, I'm wrong, I suck. And that to me, for a lot of people, is enough of a barrier for them not to try. If I don't try, I can't fail, I can't be wrong. In this game of right and wrong, I'd rather not be wrong. I don't want to be right, I just don't want to be wrong. And so most entrepreneurs have a healthy relationship with failure. Jeff Bezos said that failure and adventure are inseparable twins. There's a gazillion quotes. If you type in failure, you're going to see all kinds of ways. Like I failed many times, and I know your story, you failed as well to get here. And if we fail again, no problem. We dust ourselves off, we get back on the bicycle, and we go for another ride because we're committed to the outcome. The process, the technique, the steps doesn't matter to us. The, um, yeah, Bezos said, uh, well, yeah, I mean, basically Bezos has built what he calls a culture of failure at Amazon, which is, I mean, that's a pretty strong statement to say my company has a culture of failure. But I mean, that statement is, is not only nonsense, it's destruction unless you realize the actual value of failure, right? Um, so I, uh, I want to ask another question and I know we're, we're you know, we, we're starting to compress on, on our time window here. Uh, one of the, th and I guess for context, when, when we bring a new guest on the millionaire secrets, we give you an opportunity, you, the guest to say, what is one question you wish you were asked more often? And so I would like to ask you, and actually I never, I never actually just directly asked the question, <laughs> but with you, it's a great question. I want to ask you directly, um, with so many fake gurus and, oh, I like this term, contrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. that, that's not a typo that you, contrepreneurs, I like that. With so many fake gurus and contrepreneurs out there, why should anybody trust you? Great question. You shouldn't. You shouldn't trust anybody open-handedly and just without questioning. I think we owe ourselves to have some rigor due process and due diligence to, to kind of kick the tires. I think it's really important that you look at a person's body of work, the history, their background, and there are a couple of tips I can give you. One, ask yourself this question. Are they teaching you something that they have done themselves? There's a lot of people teaching you how to get rich doing real estate, but they actually are getting rich by telling you how to get rich through real estate. Those, those examples seem pretty clear. Is the business model built on you selling to other people to do the same thing? For example, if you enroll in a course to do webinars and the webinar tells you to do webinars, that seems to me like a little bit like a pyramid scheme that as long as there are new customers coming in, you'll be fine. But when it dries up, the whole thing collapses. Now, for, for me, you can look at my credentials. And here's the funny thing. I've only been making YouTube videos seriously since 2016. I started design in 1995. So a lot of people who become aware of who we are 
do not know that we started this design company, do not know that we've won almost every design advertising award possible, been published nationally and internationally. Not only have I judged design competitions, I've been award winners There's a, and, and, and on the board of directors on many competitions. So that's what I'm talking about. So do your due diligence, do homework and figure it out. And, and, and you know, uh, anybody that's not willing to talk to you in an open forum live to field your questions is probably hiding something. And so then you kind of just keep asking yourself, is this consistent with the way I see the world and how things work? Do not go for any quick fix. doesn't require any skill. Get rich quick scheme because those things are open to everybody. And that's probably the first sign that you're walking yourself face forward into a entrepreneur trap which is if it doesn't require a skill, if it's easy to do and anybody can do it, requires no money, well, why would anybody pay you to do it? So mm-hmm. what you need to understand is, and this is from the book, The Dip. We, uh, a lot of people go through the dip, right? When, when, when we begin something at the uh, at start, it's really fun, it's exciting. And then it gets really hard and it requires monotonous, repetitive work. You have to read, you have to research, you have to practice, you have to fail. And it's in that dip that most people just give up. And Seth talks about this, like you owe it to yourself. Once you make the commitment to go through with something, to see it through the dip, because everything that's good is on the other side of the dip, right? And what happens is it's hard and it's difficult. And that's a good thing because it keeps people out. It's a gatekeeper. Yeah. If everybody started a video on YouTube, got a million subscribers overnight, it would make that meaningless. And so the people who make it through the dip are in a space where not a lot of people exist. And that's where it's scarce and scarcity creates value. So you need to understand this when you're being marketed to that if everybody can do it, that means it's not worth anything. It requires no skill. So every time you hear one of those pitches, like here's how I made $5,000 doing nothing. Here's how I earned $10,000. And it seems like $10,000 is magic number a month by traveling, eating this and going out with hot girls or hot dudes. That's fake. I, uh, I, I happen to have that book right here. Um, and I love this book. And I am actually surprised it's never occurred to me to reference this book in my content. Um, although I, th- I think I allude to it in different ways. The way I, I like to think about it is every day you persist in doing a hard thing, you probably to an increasing degree, like a kind of a parabolic degree, uh, decrease your amount of competition. So like if, if we said, hey, let's all make YouTube channels. I mean, on day one, let's, if there's a thousand people that are saying, oh, I'm gonna, let's all make YouTube channels, on day one, you probably have a thousand YouTube videos. On day two, you have like 997. By day 30, you have like 100. But then by day 101, you might still have the same 100. Day 102, you might still have the same 100. Now you got to go to day 45 and now you're down to 80. But eventually you get to like day 1000, you're a man alone. Now you're out of the dip. You know, and, and sometimes it's duration. Sometimes it's exertion, just intensity. It's like add five pounds to the bar every time and lift it again. But every time you ratchet up the difficulty, you reduce the competition. And that's how I always think about it, that like, you know, they say nothing worthwhile is easy. You talk about symmetrical logic. If nothing, if A equals B, B equals A, right? If nothing worthwhile is easy, that means 
nothing easy could possibly be worthwhile. So like learn to actually reject and, and just categorically dismiss the idea of anything being easy and your whole life will get better. Like, like actually learn to, and I'm curious your take on this. Is this too extreme or is it okay to say, actually learn to dislike easy in general? Hmm. I think any way that you phrase that I'm, I'm good with, whether you hate it, whether you learn to dislike it, or you love the pain, whatever it is, it's fine. Just know that if you want something that nobody else has, you have to do something that no one is willing to do. And there's a reason why every house in America is not a multi-million dollar home. It's you have to do something to get there. And I, I want to be very clear to, uh, to anybody that's listening to this, especially if you're a friend, fan, uh, enemy, troll of mine. And, you know, I give this advice, people are like, well, it's easy for you to say you had a silver spoon born in your mouth. And, and let me just correct and, and to be on the record here. And this is where people make a lot of assumptions, the stories they tell themselves, right? Is my parents and I fled Vietnam in 1975. We arrived at America as refugees living in the bottom most bottom part of the socioeconomic ladder. Didn't speak the language, didn't understand the culture. Uh, my parents, uh, when they went to McDonald's, sat there at the table and waited for somebody to serve them because they didn't understand the concept of fast food, right? Mm. Uh, there's, there's a lot, this is their life. Like my uncle is driving through the yard, through the street, and he noticed a sign and he turned to his wife. He's like, I'm not sure I can buy you a house, but one day I'm gonna buy you that garage because it says the garage is for sale. And this is the life, like we, wow. we grew up with government assistance and we, we, we worked really hard to get ourselves where we are. Uh, I went to school with, with loans and in debt. That's how I did it. And so that's why I think this is the greatest place to live on earth. You can do anything that you want. That's a dangerous thing is that you have to be accountable for everything that you have. And you had to get really good at something. Or you could be really lucky too, and that's fine. Yeah, that's fine, but it's not, it's not a strategy. No, it's not a strategy. <laughs> uh, right. Well, listen, uh, Chris, this has been an amazing conversation, like really, uh, you know, cerebral and, and engaging and stimulating, and I'm super appreciative of it. Um, I know, I know you've, you, you've got a hard stop, and I want to respect that. How can people get into your world and, and become a, an even bigger fan than they no doubt already are now? Okay, Great. You can find us pretty much everywhere on the internet at thefuture.com. And somebody asked me, why do you spell the future without an E? Like, where did the E go? I said, yeah, we dropped the E go. So it's just F-U-T-U-R, thefuture.com. You can find me everywhere on the internet, including LinkedIn, Instagram, and, and YouTube at the Chris Doe. And Doe is spelled D-O. I love it, man. And, and I've checked out a number of videos on the Future YouTube channel, and, and I love it. I love what you're doing. I love how you're doing it. Uh, we've also, most of my audience knows, we have a, a book called The Millionaire Shortcut. That's a, a quick, easy read that gives people the fastest way to become a millionaire in the new economy. Note, I did not say it's easy. I just said it's the fastest, faster than others that, may, that are simply slower. Um, and if you go to the millionaire, uh, if you go to millionairesecrets.com forward slash Chris D, you can get a copy of that book. You can subscribe to the YouTube channel and all things and we'll know that you came from this episode. And uh, Chris, I just want to say thanks again for being on Millionaire Secrets, man. This has been great. It was awesome. Thanks for having me on the show, Jeff. Of course. And take care, Millionaire Secrets audience. We will see you on the next one. You just finished this episode of the Millionaire Secrets podcast. Thanks for listening. 
If you enjoyed the show, please like and share this episode and do leave us a review. Let us know how we impacted you today. Your next step toward creating your awesome life is to join me and thousands of others in the Entra Nation community where you'll receive free training, networking with other awesome life seekers, access to live events, discounts, merchandise, and other awesome perks. Head over to www.entranation.com. That is www.entrenation.com and join us today. And of course, do please follow me on social media. I can be found on all the major social networks at Jeff Lerner Official. Thank you again for listening and please go be awesome. Awesome.